You are listening to WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM. Welcome. I'm Warren Odeschalet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Baha'i Perspective is a radio program that examines contemporary issues in a unique spiritual perspective based on the principles of the Baha'i Faith. For information on the Baha'i Faith itself, you're welcome to visit the website www.baha'i.org. That's B-A-H-A-I dot O-R-G. Or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I recorded a conversation I had with a remarkable young woman by the name of Marjan Hajibande. She is 20 years old and is currently attending UMass. Between her first two years of university, she decided to do a year of service in Africa. I began our conversation by asking Marjan where she grew up and what was it like growing up there. Originally, I'm from Esfahan, Iran. That's where I was born. Um, My sister and I were both born there. And at the age of about three and four, we left Iran and... a very roundabout way, ended up in Las Vegas, Nevada, where I've spent most of my life since then. What was the circumstances that caused uh, your family to leave Iran? Seeing as how uh, my parents, after having my sister and I, began more than they had before to plan their future and our family's future, they decided it would be much more conducive to our upbringing to leave Iran at the time. Being Baha'is, the situation was not as pleasant as we would have liked, and so we went to a border town in Pakistan where we were able to connect with UN agencies and apply for religious asylum to enter the United States. Mm -hmm. And so after about six months to a year, we were granted asylum and then began traveling through Europe and eventually ended up in New York, moved to Chicago, stayed with my brothers, uh, my dad's brother's family for a little bit, and then ended up meeting up with my mom's family in Las Vegas. Mm -hmm. Do you remember anything about Iran at all? Not so much Iran. In fact, we were very young when we left, but I do remember much more from Pakistan, and it's really from the eyes of a child where everything is quite literally a game. We, uh, my sister and I, had a wonderful time playing with the other children in the neighborhood. We lived in this three-story home where we and another family occupied the second and third floor. And in the summer evenings, when the weather was extremely hot, we would all sleep out on the roof. And we'd have our barbecues there, lots of good kebab. My sister learned what a shadow was during those years. And on the rooftops, when we'd you know have the fires going and having our, our fav- famous kebab, she would stand and stare at this creature that followed her everywhere, ran around screaming in, in, in sheer terror, and would, would plop right down in between my mom and dad until it was adequately explained in a language she could understand that mm. that was simply her shadow. Now, you said you, you settled near your mom's family, and where was that? Well, in Las Vegas, her brother who actually had spent a number of years in El Salvador, ended up moving with his wife. And they were there for a few years, I believe, before we got there. Mm -hmm. And um, because my dad is in the electrical business, we were able to find um, good jobs there. And the community, um, I mean, was very welcoming. And so after my family moved there, quite literally one after the next, all of my mom's siblings began to move there. And I have quite an extended family, Mm -hmm. connections and networks all built up around that city, mm-hmm. which is wonderful. I have quite literally, as of two weeks ago, 21 or so cousins on my mom's side alone. I've grown up in a very, very large family. And though sometimes you feel like everybody's in your business where they don't need to be, it's really provi- provided a wonderful infrastructure, I feel, for you know just my upbringing in general and how I can now contribute to that as I grow up. I know because there's such a a diversity of ages, for example, within my cousins, my aunts, and my uncles, the pay-it-forward type of concept has really been evident. I remember, you know, even in the carpool system as kids, where 
auntie so-and-so or uncle whomever would give us rides here or there. And then 10 years later, I'm giving their kids rides to school or to, you know, soccer games and things. And there's these little examples that then remind me of the, my greater responsibility mm. as an older sibling, as an older cousin in these things. I remember my first recollection of like being conscious and proud of myself at taking responsibility, at having crossed this bridge from the younger half to the older half. I was about 11 years old. It actually happened around Halloween, so it's kind of relevant to our current holiday. Um, my sister and I had gone trick-or-treating with um, some of our younger younger family, and when we, that night we sat around and traded our candy, candy accordingly, and one of the little ones, probably like 40 pounds and five years old, had probably eaten about 20 or so Reese's peanut butter cups. Not a good idea. Of course, we didn't realize that at the time. So we all retire for the night, you know, get changed for bed, and this, this one is actually sleeping in my room. She's got a bed set up on my floor. In the middle of the night, she wakes me up and has vomited everywhere all over herself, all over the bed, and she's crying because she thinks that I'm going to be upset and mad and, and raise all sorts of commotion. And she's just thoroughly embarrassed and sad, too. So, of course, um, I mean, what else could I do but just you know, give her a bath and clean everything up, give her something else to wear and put out new sheets. And the next morning when I was telling my mom what had happened, she very surprised said, oh, I had, I had no idea. I didn't even realize something happened last night. And um, let me know that she was very proud of the fact that I was able to handle such a situation. Um, and more than anything else, let poor Sammy know that <laughs> it wasn't her fault. <laughs> and that mm. it was just poor decision making on everyone's <laughs> role mm. with the, the candy consumption that night. It just so happened to be that she was the tiniest and couldn't um. handle it. But... I mean, it's little things like that that mm. then really made me grateful for having been the recipient of the same type of love and the same type of understanding in a lot more dire situations, you know, mm. at my older cousins and my aunts and uncles. Yeah. And I really appreciate that because, I mean, I feel like, I mean, one of my professors put it in a way that we're really moving away from these human-connected resources um, in our lives. We don't have these extended families as much anymore or an apprenticeship type of work training. We really do just sit in front of a monitor sometimes for the rest of our existence. What do you remember about growing up in it's Las Vegas? I know it sounds kind of odd because Las Vegas doesn't seem to be the place one would leave a, a poor situation to then raise their children in. It seems kind of, um, I guess, um, going from, <laughs> I don't know, making the situation worse, in essence. Mm -hmm. But truly, to live in Las Vegas is quite different from actually visiting it. And though now especially I realize that the city is almost not allowed to have its own community identity because it only exists for one weekend at a time for the rest of the world, that was a bit of a challenge. And that went into my decision to leave the city for higher education. Mm -hmm. How I ended up at UMass, I have no idea. But I'm so grateful to be here. And I feel, though, that no matter where I would have ended up, mm. I'd be just as happy and would have met just as wonderful people. Mm -hmm. But since I'm here, I'm especially pleased. So what were the circumstances? I mean, how is it that UMass was the one that it ended up being? Well, I wanted to go to school, obviously, in a different part of the country. And I thought I would start with the Northeast. The culture really intrigued me though my first month here was a little bit of an isolated experience um i interpreted a lot of the culture as as one matching the weather as people describe a little bit cold but as i was able to you know get acquainted and um and make more eye contact with people on the street i began to feel right at home mm -hmm. so truth be told i was just looking for a very rich community Western Mass being one that I found really appealing. And after one summer freshman orientation, I thought, well, this is where I'd like to be. Mm. Okay. And you're majoring in? History and economics. Okay. 
And this is your your second year. Yes, I'm a sophomore. I understand you took a year off mm -hmm. from school. Can you tell us about that? I know. It's like I love Las Vegas enough to want to leave and go to the Northeast. I love UMass enough to want to take a year off <laughs> and go on a Baha'i Youth Year of Service. I decided, again, in what seems like a very roundabout and confused way, ended up in Tanzania at Roja Secondary School. And um, again, I just knew that I wanted to go to East Africa. I don't know why. And normally, with decisions such as this made on um, reasons such as what I've mentioned would just appall me. Like I would mm. be so taken aback by people who could live their lives that way. And I've just turned myself into one. Hmm. And so I ended, I ended up, when first applying to go on a youth year of service, just listing off a number of climates and regions that I would be interested in. Um, but what in really got me to focus on Raha was the fact that there was already um, a project in place where in my short amount of time, because a year is a very short amount of time, would at least be able to make some sort of positive impact, though... Hmm. As most people say, I was the one to have gained much more from the experience than mm -hmm. I think I could have ever given. What was the thinking behind even doing this year of service? I mean, you had started a year at UMass. What sort of triggered the interruption of your education to do the year of service? It's interesting that you phrase it that way, because most people do as an interruption of education. And though many Baha'i youth will either choose to go before their undergraduate degree or afterwards, my mom was a big fan of afterwards because she felt like you'll just be much more useful, for example, with a degree. But I felt like I was building such a wonderful momentum with my formal academic education that if I didn't take a moment to really connect, I felt, with the world in an untraditional way, that I would quickly lose the opportunity. Mm -hmm. So I felt like it was a reminder of why I was getting my education my formal education in the first place and quite literally a way for me to um, plant my roots in a way to commit myself to something like this in the future. When I left the school, the questions weren't like, are you going to come back? It would be, when are you coming back? And as hard as it was to leave, I was just as excited to return back to Amherst. So you arrived, what was the name of the school again? Ruaha Secondary School. What did you do when you got there? Everything. <laughs> well, again, because it's a school where if you're there to serve and you're there to volunteer, you'll be taken advantage of in every positive way possible. So with respect to the youth volunteers, we got quite used to getting these, quote, opportunities for service on a regular basis. Primarily, I was a teacher and taught subjects of uh, computer education, moral education, English, as well as this uh, how to use the library type of research class and introducing to students to those types of resources. Mm -hmm. So I taught about as many courses as any full-time Tanzanian teacher, though my subjects, primarily moral education and computers, were not of the formal Tanzanian curriculum, which is why I, without a Tanzanian teacher's license, was able to teach them. My roommate, for example, who's also a youth volunteer, because she had a degree, ironically, to teach Spanish, she was able to get her Tanzanian license and teach required subjects. The Ruaha School, is that a public school in Tanzania? It's a private school that was run on the Tanzanian curriculum. It's owned and operated by the National Spiritual Assembly, the Baha'is of Tanzania. And out of, I mean, the 600 or so students that do attend there for ordinary level and advanced level education come from all over the country, come from a number of, number of ethnic backgrounds, religious backgrounds. Um, it's quite a nice mix. And they're given access to a number of resources that wouldn't otherwise be available to them. It's interesting because this, the, the country is run primarily on this type of boarding school system, a lot of private schools as well as public schools that are boarding, students are really you know, immersed in their educational environment for those years. 
So I feel like Raha gives a wonderfully balanced type of environment. Mm -hmm. uh, just to give a few other background notes, because Tanzania has a dual language system, children attend primary school in a Swahili medium, but with an English subject. And theoretically, this would give them enough proficiency to start their education um, in an English medium school, which all secondary schools are. However, this isn't always the case. So additionally, Raha offers a number of for example, pre-Form 1 courses that help students get ready in order to take chemistry and literature and everything else in English. I remember I probably showed up to Iringa looking like a wreck because it is about a seven-hour bus ride from Dar es Salaam to Iringa. And, um, of course, I was having a little bit of difficulty adjusting to the, the food and water, not by tastes, because it tasted great, but had a little bout of dysentery right from the get-go and um, was trying my best to hide that in my facial expressions, but people saw right through me. And I had a little bit of difficulty, you know, wanting to rid everyone of that she's going to drop it any moment type of idea. So I tried really hard to do that. And the harder I tried, the worse it got. So as soon as I was able to let go, and I hope I guess it seems like I stepped back a little bit. Things began to really develop more positively. And I remember, because everyone, I think, or I hope, at least has that one moment of maybe regretting making the decision of taking a year off school and going to a completely foreign-seeming area. Um, and I remember that first night in Iringa, going to sleep in a very dusty mosquito net, thinking to myself, maybe this was a mistake. And by the next morning, when really interacting with the people for the first time and, and seeing the school and who would eventually be my students and best friends, it all began to melt and melt away. Um, I was actually having a conversation with some people from the area and used the phrase, well, back home we do it like this. And immediately someone caught that and asked me, well, back home, by that do you mean your apartment just on the other side of campus? And it really made me think that even giving that impression that my foot was out the door or that I wasn't fully invested in this or what was and continues to be my home, in a sense, that um, as soon as I was able to abandon that, I was able to really um, show how much I cared for that community. And... And boy, was it difficult to leave. And I know everyone says that, and I'm glad everyone says that. Because if you can't say that, then I don't know how effective the time could have been spent, as effectively the time could have been spent. What was the age group of the kids? What were some of the experiences you had with them? It is a secondary school, so it can be compared to our level of high school students. At the same time, because students there begin their education rather late, probably age six or seven, and often experience many interruptions along the way due to family constraints and um, working. They can range, I mean, upwards of mid to upper 25 and 30 years old in secondary school. It's, and it, it does occur. At the same time, when they're in secondary school, they have a tendency to act like they're in secondary school. And it can be a sensitive subject. So normally it just wouldn't come up. You just treated students as students and faculty and teachers were treated as such. Even though I was occasionally or often younger than my students, it, would, it wouldn't come up as a point of conflict. How many classes did you teach? Daily, um, probably four hours of actual teaching and the rest more administrative time mm -hmm. or working in the library or in the computer lab. Mm -hmm. So I remember my first few classes and I had an interesting challenge because I had some experience teaching, um, especially like English as the second language and a few other subjects. I spent a lot of my extracurricular training in high school just standing in front of a crowd and lecturing. So I felt fairly confident doing things like that and had a few early successes. This, of course, really boosted my ego. I could barely fit my head through the door. And I was obviously setting myself up nicely to be knocked down <laughs> rather quickly. <laughs> and I'll never forget um, walking to a class of about 40 students. And I think one of the reasons that our relationships had been so wonderful thus far is because there was a wonderful mutual respect. 
And as soon as they were able to smell a little bit of um, arrogance on my part, they let me have it. And I feel that they did it in a in a right or correct way. I left that classroom quite literally with tears behind my eyes, and but just couldn't show it. And and I couldn't help but thank them at the end of the year for really letting me in on something that I wasn't even aware of, mm. you know, whose growth had become a bit normal and really detrimental to my, I don't know, building of character. Mm. So what form did this take? I didn't realize. Well, of course, I imagined it could be hard to control 40 students doing 40 different things and not at all paying attention to what I was talking about in the front of the classroom. And um, that was it. Hundred and or that eighty-minute period was literally the longest period of my life. I, I, I at one point like gave up and just kind of sat down and let the the chaos continue and just supervised for the sake of not not having it apparent that I left the classroom early. And then, how did it transform? Um, I had that class um, about two days later because I mean immediately. It clicked, <laughs> and I began to make um, some changes. And as we were going through the curriculum, a lot of my classes, there was a lot of room for um, changes to go with the, the pace of the students as well as their interests. So I immediately made that my next step to see what really interested them, for example, in um, computer literacy. What did they really want to learn how to do? Or... Um, in moral education, what were the issues and, and conflicts that really were on their minds, especially coming from a, a Western culture or just a different culture. I wasn't always um, in tune with what they were experiencing. And though the curriculum, which the school has, ha has been developing for a number of years, is, is fairly effective, we were able to, or I was able to get a better understanding of what each of the bullet points meant. And what were the issues that were they were interested in? Well, with respect to this, the curriculum the school offers, their first year, there's a great amount of time spent on a lot of self-reflective evaluation of why am I getting my education in the first place. Because if I choose not to advance the world in its progress, then it's pretty useless. Um, and so I've, I found it most effective to have students really do a lot of, of goal setting and planning um, directly involved with how they're becoming whatever will benefit the world and not in any sort of superficial because I'm doing well somehow this will matriculate down to everything because a lot of them do come from fairly um, I don't want to say impoverished because that isn't accurate but areas of the country or um, environments where they have witnessed injustices occur and things that were very important to them. They want to be able to return to their communities and really be what they like to call agents of change in mm -hmm. these communities. And in addition to that, as they continue, they're really interested in how the different religious perspectives kind of play a role in that because, like I said, the school's student population was quite diverse in its religious um, affiliations. And what so, are the various religious affiliations? Um, they have a great Christian and Muslim population, naturally, um, a good Baha'i population, as well as a few pockets of Hindu and Sikh and uh, a few other religions present. Mm. So, And because a lot of the curriculum obviously draws on these different religious texts, they are interested in seeing the parallels as well as sometimes the deviations. Mm. Mm -hmm. So how did the various religious factions operate in the school? Well, naturally, students being in that age where they are, if not maybe for the first time, um, continuing to understand why they believe what they believe, or occasionally, when it is the first time, you know, experiencing that, that shock of that first question of why, or if, it, if I can't make sense of this, why am I doing this? So it would occasionally come up between the students. Um, at the same time, there is that, that pride that the students also exhibited that encouraged them to really commit their religious ideals to heart and then carry them forth in as amiable a way as possible. Mm -hmm. It's interesting there because religion is part of the curriculum too, That, but at the same time it's only your own religion that's 
necessarily part of your curriculum. I remember, so every Wednesday afternoon for religion class, like the whole school would just restructure all the classrooms and switch and go into their different forms by religion. And there would be a lot of community members who would come in to teach those classes specifically. The school staff often does a lot of outreach programs for the general area around Uringa as well as um, other rural areas and urban areas around Tanzania. They do parenting workshops, um, seminars on nutrition and uh, prenatal care, a number of a number of things. And for one of these parenting workshops specifically, um, they had asked for my participation. And I wasn't quite sure how I fit into this, being a 19-year-old girl who had no children of her own. Um, they actually said that they were looking for a fun morning activity because they know it's difficult for people to show up on time to these things. And they wanted, um, a, they wanted something to reward those who showed up on time and at the same time not be part of the program such that they'd have to repeat it in the afternoon. And they were actually looking for a cooking demonstration of some sort. So I thought, sure. Um, what can I make that's with the resources available that hopefully they'll actually be able to do when they get home? And the first thing I thought of was my mom's carrot jam. And so I went and bought like a whole bucket of carrots, a lot of sugar, some limes, and I was ready to go. I spent the whole night before in my Martha Stewart way preparing each step of the, <laughs> of the process of making the jam and um, showed up that morning with my gear um, and this Jiko, which is like a like a charcoal stove that I'd be making it on. And, and we sat and we waited and nobody showed up. Absolutely nobody showed up. And, and now I'm beginning to appear agitated. This is still in my first few months of service there. And I'm still letting go of a lot of things that I used to covet as far as personality traits were concerned. And one of that is this really obsessive, compulsive, often unreasonable attachment to what I consider to be valuable use of time. So I'm sitting there, um, you know, tapping my pen or fidgeting, walking around, um, wondering what's going on. And the other um, presenters are noticing this and, and kind of, and probably, and I hope they were laughing about this internally because I was just, I was being so stupid. And so, and I'd really turned this whole thing around and centered it on myself because I imagined, uh, this is my Saturday. When am I going to do laundry? When am I going to go grocery shopping? I'm not being unreasonable. I've got exams to mark. This isn't this isn't just me wanting to go buy like congas and kitenges at the market. This is serious. I spent all this time preparing the materials. So eventually, um, at about I don't know one p.m. probably like five hours after we had showed up that morning, people began to drift in, and just a handful. And I came to find out that the reason so many people who had been extended invitations didn't even show up or were forced to come so late is because there were a number of funerals in the village across the street from us. And when funerals occur, it really is a community event. And I, I immediately wanted to sink into the ground because I had managed to shift this entire opportunity for service on my personal schedule mm. and felt so selfish and so ridiculous in the way that I imagined I was going to be serving, so to speak. I had, I had all these ideas and all these understandings about what my youth year of service would be and all that time I was, you know, creating it in a self-centered way. Mm. So after feeling very embarrassed at the at the obvious transformation that occurred that afternoon, we were able to make a lot of wonderful jam <laughs> and um, enjoy it with our tea and our biscuits. And then uh, I ended up staying for the rest of the, the workshop. Though it was entirely in Swahili, I was able to glean a lot, a lot from the just being with everyone and doing these cooperative activities and these and these demonstrations and, and course materials that I eventually had to go home and translate a little to, to really understand. You mentioned the, the language. So did you, were you able to pick up the language? Because I was at an English medium school, obviously, most of my day was spent speaking English. 
um, at the same time, you couldn't go into town to do anything without knowing a bit of Swahili. And it's a language that was a sh- like a complete joy to try to learn. And though I feel like I knew enough to get, you know, to get around and, you know, and make a fool of myself occasionally with my pronunciation. <laughs> These are things I love to do because I feel like if they were able to, and by they I mean my new community, were able to see that um, out of my sheer love for them and for the language, would make a fool of myself in my attempts to learn it, well, then it was complete, completely worth it. So, yeah, I feel like um, it's a language now that I'm back that I'd like to continue studying. Mm-hmm. So I'm really excited. They're offering it at the five college level. Yeah. Oh, so it's like with this good. individual tutoring. So I'm excited. Now, this is a, a privately run school by the Baha'is. What is the community's perception of the school and the government's perception of the school? It is a rather un- <clears throat> excuse me, it's a rather unique school um, in the country, in that it was one of the first to not include corporal punishment and caning as part of its policies, and it would still maintain record-breaking exam scores for their Tanzanian national exams. And because of this, obviously, there was a lot of attention attracted, um, sometimes positively, sometimes negatively. People assumed that there was some sort of foul play going on. Um, and then it, at the same time, allowed the school to really demonstrate its merits and how it was able to do this without caning, for instance. All the staff members, from the cooking staff to construction to administrators and teachers, all go through the Virtues Project training and are really required and encouraged to incorporate this type of language into their teaching. Now, what is the Virtues Project? Uh, if you're not familiar with it, um, it's it's a series of courses put together by Linda Kavlin Popov, and they do these trainings every semester in order to... Um, really, I guess, hopefully incur some paradigm shifts in the way that that classes are normally taught. And in addition to this, cooperative learning is a big push. And these are all things that are quite slow coming because these are teaching styles that aren't normally used in that area. I mean, it really is a memorization game, but as a whole area seems to, it seems to be transforming to a more skills-based type of assessment and development in the students, it's becoming increasingly important. So um, students are encouraged in these ways to participate more actively in their classes as opposed to, again, memorizing what's written on the boards um, and um, also encouraged to develop a lot of life skills. And that's why, I mean, moral education offered by the school, I mean, Raha was one of also the first to offer such a class. And again, with a lot of resistance, students felt like it was a waste of time to be able to, to have to take moral education classes that wouldn't have material expressed in the national exam. Or even computer literacy classes were initially thought of as almost ridiculous because it's not, again, tested on the national exam. And at the same time, now they see that it's these very classes that are giving them the skills for them to one, have viable job opportunities upon graduation, as well as, um, you know, a a protective type of self-discipline that's hopefully guiding them through their steps after graduation. Mm. And what kind of subjects are covered, let's say, in the moral education curriculum? So I discussed briefly the the first introduction to that subject, and that's why you're getting your education in the first place. And this gets broadened into um, the student's role as a human being in the world, and a lot of um, now recognizable moral standards, um, equality and justice being two large proponents, I mean, parts of it. Um, In addition to that, there are smaller segments um, dedicated to much more, more tangible parts um, or things facing the region in sub-Saharan Africa, AIDS is a very large problem. And so there is an extensive sex ed part to the moral education program. And um, Student Partnership Worldwide, uh, based out of the United Kingdom, SPW volunteers often um, visit the school as well as many of the other schools in the area and do demonstrations similar to that. In my experience there, in my (laughs) very short year there, the school was actually visited by government officials for an, for um, 
inspections outside the regularly scheduled type of accreditation and certification. And you can't help but feel that this is, again, extra attention because it is the only Baha'i school in the country, because it was one of the first to do these types of things. And, and this innovation is often you know, struggled against. Mm. And because it's also full of a very diverse staff, the staff members come from all over Tanzania, all over East Africa, Kenya and Uganda especially, from Ethiopia, Europe, and the United States, it, it really does attract a lot of attention. I know I would walk around at the market trying to buy an avocado, and someone would ask me um, where I'm from and give me three options. Are you part of the Peace Corps? Are you part of SPW? Or do you work at Raha Secondary School? So it became very well known in the community as well as the country. So, What do these students do after they finish at the school? If the students in their final year perform well in their national examinations, most will then move on to their A-level education and after that to a university education. Um, and for those that don't, they often formally enter the, the workforce, there's a big push in the country that's causing a lot of people to, again, leave the rural areas and flock to the, the commercial capitals creating a lot of those subsequent problems. But um, everyone imagines that they can go to the city and get a, a good job. But th these are the most common paths, I guess, mm -hmm. um, followed by students. And what is the equivalent of our system for A? A level? Yeah. There isn't quite the equivalent. This was originally based on the British system. And so you have Form 1 through 4 is your ordinary level education. And then those who want to pursue a university degree would first have their advanced level education um, with the more concentrated curriculum mm -hmm. and those are more normally in three subject um, concentrations for example um, HGL which is history geography and literature or like BCG which is the biology chemistry and geography I don't know and there's like a number of of different combinations that you would then pursue before entering the university formally We'll return to Marjan after a short break. You're listening to WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Responsibility. This is something I have forever struggled with. Whether it be doing my chores as a child, following through with my commitments, paying bills on time, or even just making simple choices. But the more I have strived and learned to act responsibly, the more trustworthy I've become, the more dependable I've become, and most importantly, the more aligned with God I feel. Tolerance is a good place for me to start. If I can be tolerant of a situation first, then I get to follow it through with other virtues like love and patience and kindness um, that support my act of being tolerant. Well, courage to me is a way to get through fears and troubles. When I'm scared, I always tell my parents how I feel with confidence and bravery. They help me work out my problems. After that, I feel more courageous. Welcome back. You're listening to A Baha'i Perspective on WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM. I'm Warren Odeschulet, your host. We've been listening to a recorded interview that I had with Marjan Hajibande, a 20-year-old UMass student who decided to take a year off from her studies to be of service in the country of Tanzania. I asked Marjan what her overall impression was of Tanzania. It's quite a unique country, even in East Africa, and especially when you compare it to the whole continent. It doesn't face many of the tribalism issues that plague many of the other countries. At the same time, it's one of the poorest on the continent, if not the world. 
if you compare it with its country to the north, that of Kenya, that really latched onto capitalism and um, took advantage of all its resources, and unfortunately its materialisms that kind of placed it in its um, current position, it's diametrically the opposite, Tanzania is. Um, at the same time, these types of issues didn't really present themselves as much in my year there as they will, I think, to appreciate my students and the classes and the culture and the little bit of traveling that I was able to do mm. on a level that was just um, purely able to appreciate the country without necessarily criticizing, though I felt it has a number of areas where, just as any country, mm -hmm. um, it's stubborn to improve. And you were able to get out to travel about in Tanzania? Indeed. During my uh, school holiday break, I was able to visit Raha National Park, um, Zanzibar off the coast, as well as the Baha'i House of Worship in Kampala, Uganda. Mm -hmm. So, of course, you have to take advantage of things like that when you're halfway across the world. <laughs> and what's traveling to those countries like? Yeah. Well, difficult in the sense that it's not a very um, airline-friendly type of region, so you are taking buses for very long periods of time. In fact, the longest leg of which from Dar es Salaam, which is about the commercial capital of Tanzania, to Kampala, Uganda, is anywhere from a 24-hour to 30-hour bus ride, where in the middle of the night you hit the Kenyan borders and have to do all sorts of passport checks and things that if you're not familiar with at least some of the language or just what to expect can be a little nerve-wracking. While I was there, I had the the pleasure of visiting a lot of the homes of my students and co-workers, one of whom being uh, uh, another youth volunteer. Her name is Maria, she's a Tanzanian, who actually had graduated from Waraha um, a few years before, and she was there also doing a year of service. And for the holiday break, she had grabbed a couple of the Western volunteers and said, you are coming to visit my my in-laws compound in Mbozi and I'm not taking no for an answer. So, I mean it was quite an amazing trip, the whole the whole thing because it it happened kind of well, it did happen at the very last minute. Seeing as how a lot of the the Muslim holidays um or holy days recognized um are only known, you know, after midnight the previous night, we were lucky to have about a 5-day weekend. They were like that's it, we're leaving now. And after having not slept at all the night before, trying to prepare for this trip and doing laundry is a little bit difficult when you have to let it air dry, <laughs> we finally were on our way. And through a number of different transportation routes, I mean, part of the trip, I ended up standing on a bus for about two and a half hours and completely worth it. And this was after having not slept the whole night, so I'm visibly falling asleep. And of course... There was someone who offered me their seat, and we did a bit of a rotation because um, nobody wants to stand for that whole amount of time. We finally get to our first junction, and we're already really behind schedule. And so we begin our walk, and this is still in the rainy season, and our shoes and feet are just getting caked with mud, so much so that it's really slowing us down. We eventually make those la like those ten kilometers barefoot, oh and in in the dark. But of course, there was this beautiful moonlight that really guided our way. And of course, this is Maria's home, so she, she's not concerned. Though we're a little bit nervous, we learned a lot of tricks. Like in the rainy season, you walk where it's dark instead of where it's light, because that's where the light areas are where the puddles are, and. I learned that the hard way, having fallen. <laughs> and it was towards the end of the trip, too. It's always like that. You feel really confident. You're like, I've made it this whole way. And then you, you know, splatter your whole self on this, on this muddy road. Um, but I remember getting to her home and being given this amazing welcome by everyone there. And not in any kind of... Um, freak show type of mentality that there's these two people here that obviously don't look like anyone else and you know gather all sorts of attention negatively in that respect but it was a a really um extended family type of um welcome the 
And they were <laughs> half impressed and just half entertained at the way that we'd already quite assimilated ourselves in the culture with the, the practices, the daily routines that and really do become um, as easy as seemingly difficult they appeared. Um, but I remember one of my last nights there, I ended up getting a number of spider bites. That's what I assumed they were because my leg had become badly infected and and um, and pus literally oozed for weeks after that. But at that time, I had such a bad fever that I couldn't travel the next day. And um, because we weren't sure if it was definitely from the spider or also from the water that we were drinking, and uh, they sent some kid on a bike for about 20 kilometers just to get me bottled water. And this was someone who I, whom I had just met maybe a couple days previously. And just to, to be really taken care of, not ever really being worried as, as bad as the situation may seem because you know that you're in good hands. Mm. Like I'll always be grateful for that. Mm. So how long did it take you to get back on your feet? I left about two days after I had intended to leave and again accompanied by um, one of Maria's relatives, her, one of her cousins who got us back. Um, literally would not leave until we were on the appropriate bus heading in the, in the right mm -hmm. direction. <laughs> when did you return to the States after? I left Raha July 3rd this summer and I spent a week visiting a few friends in Italy and then I made my way over to Las Vegas. Mm -hmm. So I was there by the 10th of July. Immediately received this warm welcome from my family. It was actually quite ironic. My mom's youngest sister and her family had just moved to Las Vegas, but the day before my arrival. So here they were at the airport welcoming me to Las Vegas <laughs> when they had just gotten that. there. Mm -hmm. well, and then you came back to UMass for this semester. Exactly. I was yeah. here right before Labor Day weekend. Yeah. What, what, what do you envision your plans for the future? My plans for the future are a wonderful gray cloud at the moment. Um, gray not because it's depressing. Gray because I'm thoroughly confused and enjoying it. I um, really enjoy the subjects I'm pursuing, history and economics, and really chose them because I felt like they've been making me a much more well-rounded individual. At the same time, I don't know how I'm going to develop this into a more concrete sort of calling an occupation. But I feel very much at home in an academic setting and so anticipate going to graduate school, probably somewhere in the South, because I've got to keep this tour going, right? And mm. it really has been an, an especially culturally enriching experience living somewhere else. And this mm. is a huge country, so I want to be able to continue that. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Marjan Hajibande, a second-year student at UMass who has just recently returned from a year of service in Tanzania. If you want specific information on the Baha'i faith itself, you're welcome to visit the website www.baha'i.org, that's B-A-H-A-I dot O-R-G, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join us next time on A Baha'i Perspective. No trouble and problems don't exist. I check on them, that ain't the case at all. It goes back to the time when I was very small. I didn't mind the size and age, my papa used to say. You can always look at the negative, but you should always live in the positive. So I try every day to live in that way. What is and how much they can And be the first to complain about nothing And life going their way The attitude's that I can't
ain't nothing about And they're happy with just breathing in and out The ones that when you say let's go make a difference They'll say nah that's okay So I don't waste time on the trip side Cause I do know the real on the flip side And I'm crystal clear every day That's why I say I know that I'm a hostage to 
WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station.